Hello, welcome to Pop-Up Submissions. This is the show, as you know, where me and my guests, who I'll introduce you to in just a moment, look for tomorrow's big bestsellers, the new books and the new authors. And here to help me, we've got two amazingly great guests. They've been on before. Very, very welcome return to Neil Denny, formerly editor of the Bookseller magazine in the UK and now co-joint editor of Book Brunch, the, I'm going to call it the Bible of the publishing business. Welcome, Neil. Very good to have you on again. Uh, just in a, in a quick sentence or in a word, what is the current state of the publishing business right now? They're making great margins. They're having their best year for probably 20 years. They're all on 10, 20% profits there. Amazing. Amazing. Uh, best year ever. Just absolutely stunning. A beggar's belief, really. How wonderful to see Kaylee on again. How are you, Kaylee? One of our most popular guests. An omnivorous autodidact. All well with you? Yes. All good. Thank you. How are you very, doing? Very, very good to see you. How about the US publishing market? If you have questions for Neil, let us have them. I'll bounce them off them as soon as we can. I think people are going to be really keen to hear him today. Right now, let's see what people are saying about Oz. And this is from Nell. Thank you very much, Nell, for sending this in. Nell says, hi, thank you for having my pitch on your show. That's what we're here for. We just moved, so I was slammed with that and didn't have time to see it until today. Well, you know, you can watch the recording. We like it when you join us live, of course. I find it harsh but helpful. We try not to be too harsh. We try to be honest. I appreciate objective opinions. Very helpful for future queries. Isn't that great? Now then, guys, this is, as you know, this is really the first show of the month. I know it's the, the 10th. But for reasons too boring to explain, the last show last week was actually the last show of the previous month. So this is the first show. So we do not have yet a monthly leaderboard, although we do know, of course, that the winner of last month, Becky Rush, with her amazing story, is now heading its way right now to the fabulous UK publisher, Head of Zeus, for their imminent consideration. And our fingers are very much crossed for Becky. And that is our very, very first video seminar. It's amazingly cheap. It's on the subject of blurbs. It's something that uh, many writers really don't understand. And you can get it now, litopia.com slash blurb. Let's have a look at our very first submission today. It's called Sleeping. Interesting title. It's from Caroline. And it's YA fantasy slash fractured fairy tale. And this is Caroline's blurb. Sleeping is a version of Sleeping Beauty from the point of view of the servants who go on strike and protest over being put to sleep for a hundred years, led by disgruntled housemaid Talia. Meanwhile, the princess is trying to avoid marrying the idiot prince and her lady's maid is trying to come to terms with the loss of her girlfriend while the three fairy godmothers attempt to sort it all out before their evil counterpart arrives. Always interested in a spirited retelling. Oh, all right, you've already got one convert there, Caroline. Let me tell you, um, let me tell everybody about you, Caroline. I was a stand-up comedian, you say? for many years and have brought that humour 
to the novel. Very difficult trick to pull off. I hope you do. I've written non-fiction for a range of magazines, write academic work in my day job as a social policy lecturer. And funerals for my work as a humanist funeral celebrant. What a wide-ranging, multi-talented person you are. I also have an MA in literature. Well, uh, in that case, I think the best we can do, and we do want to do the best for you, is to give you an enormously multi-talented reading from Ali. Prologue. A teenage girl ran towards the castle, tears streaming down her bright red face. As she reached the door, she doubled over, breathing heavily and wretched for a minute. Recovering herself, she approached the great wooden door and began to beat it with her fists, screaming and hollering. Her feet joined in, kicking as hard as she could, but the door withstood her assault without any movement. She carried on, undeterred, until her fists bled, her voice was hoarse, and her shoes ruined. Eventually exhausted, she collapsed at the foot of the door, where she sobbed until she slept. The castle loomed over her, silent and unmoving. Day one, chapter one, entering. The sun rose again, but nothing else did, not yet. Thick vines enclosed the grey walls, barely allowing the stone to penetrate through the green. It was said that birds didn't fly over the castle, but it wasn't true. The few birds that did were the only moving signs of life, though. Their calls the only thing to break the thick silence. Their moat was still just about discernible but it was green and thick with algae. The golden fish that once shimmered through the water were long gone, leaving nothing but slime in their wake. A prince stood at the edge of the moat, reins in his hand, entourage hanging back, awaiting his command. He looked out of place, shining where everything around was old, overgrown and decidedly gunky. This was not what he had been led to expect, not at all. Most of the entourage of four were happy to wait and see what transpired. It wasn't much of an entourage, if the prince was honest, but he rarely was. That was another thing that hadn't gone as expected. He wouldn't usually head to market with a group this small, let alone on a daring adventure across arid, desert and treacherous mountains, in search of the greatest prize of his life. But most of his friends were laid up with some bug that was going around, and the village lads who could usually rely on being bullied, cajoled, or if it came to it, paid to accompany him on his exploits, were inexplicably tied up with some harvest nonsense, or had broken legs or similar. As a result, he was left with this ragtag bunch, consisting of the village chancer, the village idiot, and the brother of the one with the broken leg. They didn't look like much, he mused. The idiot, Luke someone or other, was even picking his nose. It was lucky that his best friend, Lord Peregrine Cruvel, had made himself available to accompany them, or this would have been a washout from start to finish. Two of the entourage were expecting the operation to be aborted. They could be home in two days if they left now. Cold, wet, bored and homesick, they silently offered prayers and incantations for a favourable decision. Two were hoping for a longer mission. Lord Cruvel was raring for a fight and disappointed that, so far, the only target for his sharpened swords was the green, drooping foliage all around them. The idea of returning home without a victory to crow about disheartened him. Even a defeat would be better than nothing, he mumbled to himself. Bob Jeffers, the oldest of the village lads, wasn't too bothered about a battle. He was just enjoying being out of earshot of his multitude of children, not to mention their various mothers. We'll go around again, 
the prince announced, bounding into the saddle like a man born to it, which, of course, he definitely was, having been riding almost as long as he'd been walking. At this point, a good twenty-five years. We shall not return empty-handed. Fear not! With that, he galloped off round the side of the castle, in a dramatic and royal fashion. Avast! Lord Cuval yelled, as he swung himself back onto his own horse, and followed suit. I wasn't fearing, muttered Joe Raven, the last of the entourage to mount. I just want to go home. He considered breaking into a rising trot in pursuit of his prince, before realising that chances were they'd be back round in a minute. So if he just hung on where he was, he'd save himself the bother. That's a very good question. Let's see what the genius room is saying. Um, so, I think a generally sympathetic reaction here, actually, Caroline, to begin with. Uh, Galadriel says, like the description of the ragtag bunch, maybe a little overwritten. Martin says, nice bathos. Fairy tale meets kitchen sink. Johnny says, nice pace, fairy tale-esque, and yet not. So, Eva's striking a slightly discordant note there, not keen on the prologue. Hmm. Puts me off completely. Um, and Cora says, nice beginning, lovely writing. What did you think there, Kaylee? I really enjoyed it. So, um, a few comments. The prologue, in some ways, I was like, okay, we've got action here, which is good, a good kind of kickoff point. But equally, it felt almost a little bit too cliche. A woman yeah. running at a castle can't get into the door. So, I'm not sure what it's really kind of bringing us a unique story that we want to kind of. Uh, yeah. to read that much so maybe, maybe have a think about that um, I actually kind of as we got into the first chapter I, I really enjoyed the twinkle in the eye and I do see kind of this nice wave of humour throughout it's quite funny how we see the prince thinks about things and is really dismissive of, pe dismissive of people but there's humour there um, the only thing I would watch out for is that there were quite a few points of views we, we jumped from one person's yeah. head to another yeah. and then I, I got a little bit sort of confused so I would almost streamline that maybe just keep it to the prince but then and I saw some comments in the genius room about this maybe move the story on take it somewhere a little bit more kind of make that the focus um, but I, I did yeah. really enjoy it yeah wow very very good perceptive stuff there thank you very much Kaylee now Neil um can you just move slightly into the picture that's great. Yes, uh, sorry, yes, yes even you. better. The whole Neil Denny. <laughs> yeah. Now, uh, can I just ask you, Neil, uh, are you okay with the voting system? And if you are, you've got to press that vote button. Oh, I need to vote now, do I? Okay. Yeah, please. Yeah. Yeah. Right. Sorry. Uh, it's all right. Yeah. Title's kind of average. I thought the prologue was fine work for me. I like the craft. I thought some of the humor was good, actually. Multitude of mothers, things like that. Uh, the only thing that I couldn't quite get my head around, and maybe this would become apparent later on, is the prince just suddenly appears. You've got the prologue, and then suddenly it's a prince. Yeah. Is it the same castle? It just needs some sort of bit more linking somehow between the yeah. prologue and the appearance yeah. of the prince. Um, yeah. A note on language. Obviously, it's set in the past, so are they speaking kind of archaic English or not? Because suddenly one of them said a vast round the, round the <laughs> moat. No one says a vast now, but they did then. But which is it? You, you, as the writer, you need to choose, basically, I think. Very good point, very good point. Let me just talk you through the voting. So um, you've got to uh, give a little star rating and then press the vote button underneath it to send us the data. Oh, right. Okay, Otherwise, I've done the star, not the vote. Yeah, you've got to press that button. Right, is that working so, now, Peter? 
Uh, it, it takes about five, ten seconds. Okay. Uh, I think it will will probably work. Yes. 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 <laughs> now you can. Yeah, I let me just interrogate you on this. Did you intend to give a five stars, a hundred percent for the commercial bang, the commercial appeal? Yeah, I think yeah, well, you are a good oh, area. Okay, I think, yeah, okay. absolutely right. Good. Yeah, no, and this is this is good quality stuff. The writing's good. You know, I mean, it. it, it the person writing this knows how to communicate. You can sense that straight away. Fabulous. There you go, Caroline. Uh, and often stand-ups make good writers because they have to be very good at getting attention, yeah. holding it. Their vocabulary is good. You know, a lot of the basics are already there. If you can do stand-up, yeah. you can they write. They totally basically. do. Absolutely. They absolutely do. I find that a major attraction, actually, with stand-up. Um, I need more voice, personally. I'm, I'm going to be the dismal doesn't here. I suspect that I'm probably the lowest marker of everybody. I'm very sorry about that. Genius Streaming Steve. Genius Streaming Votes is pretty good, actually, Caroline. Um, I need more voice, though. Just For me, the bar is Princess Bride. So, you know, in terms of sort of um, fairy tale parodies, you've got you've got to be close to that. If you're not getting close to that, then I'm going to ask myself, what is so special about this? So that's why I've gone a bit low on that. But you know what? I think you're doing rather well, actually. It's a pretty good start. Neil, I want to ask you um, something just before we get to the next submission, and that is, you, you made this most extraordinary comment. I think a lot of people outside the publishing business <clears throat> will be thinking to themselves, my, my goodness me, you know, in the in the States and in the UK, we're seeing bookshops closing down, and we're hearing, you know, dreadful things about author income dropping like a stone, and yet here you are, the acknowledged industry expert, saying that things have never been so good. Isn't there something, a bit of, dis bit of a disconnect well there? Yeah, there is a disconnect. I mean, the first of all point is a lot of the broadcast media are obsessed with the narrative about the decline of reading that isn't actually true. Oh. So, for example, the number of bookshops in the UK is up now over the last 18 months uh, by about 70 or so in independence. Wow. Uh, that's to say indies. The chain is solid with Smiths and Waterstones are both stable. Uh, they're not exactly expanding at the moment, but they're not contracting either and Smiths yeah. are on upward curve. Um, if you look at uh, the measures around book sales they're up the margins the publishers are making are up so you know profile released yeah. their results of, I don't know six weeks ago they were up 10% uh, and they're making 15% margins Faber I expect will do well this year um, Bloomsbury look at them they're absolutely booming yes oh, thank, you, Harry. thank you Harry thank you Harry reading books you know, I was going to say, how much of this is windfall profit because of the the lockdown we've well, all had for eighteen months or yeah, so? No, we, you know, we've had to read, we've had to read books or watch a Netflix. Yeah, no, there's some truth in that, but it's still profit, it's still money that they've got in the bank. It's still made reading a more, you know, brought reading back into the front to some extent. Yeah. Some people were saying that, you know, with the declining commuting and people not going out to shops during the lockdown, that would be really bad for the book trade. But that hasn't worked out at all. Hmm. Uh, so you know, in fact, they're, they're doing pretty well. Yeah, uh, there are you know you can point to various wrinkles, things that could go bad for them. Uh, you know, the, clearly, at the moment, the UK economy is stuttering slightly. There could be problems with distribution, printing books. Physically, is becoming more expensive. You know, your raw material costs are going up. So the price of books will be going up over the autumn. I'm sure about that. Yeah, the spring. Uh, but over, honestly, those are small fine. The big picture is that digital has worked and that they've hung on to copyright. So it's not like the music business. So the digital story in books is positive. So audio is booming, you know, ebooks are booming. 
you know, all the systems are pointing good. The other key point about London publishers is they're sitting at the middle of the English-speaking world, and yeah. more and more people speaking English and yeah, reading yeah. in English. So if yeah. you're publishing in English to native English speakers, you've got a massive advantage over yeah. everybody else, basically. Yeah, it's all, it's all nothing but good news so far. Very no. upbeat. Very. Uh, we'll, we'll, we'll come on to the we'll come on to yeah, the downside I mean, yeah. That's but it's a very very encouraging start. Thank you very much, Neil. Let's look at our next submission. We'll come straight back to you. This is submission number two, and it's called "There's a Place for Us." Interesting title. It's from Magnus. It's YA slash NA. Neo adult. Neo adult. Comma literary, and this is Magnus's blurb. And by the way, there's a QR code down there. Uh, we love it when you send in websites. Uh, we promote your websites. Hopefully, you'll promote us as well. Uh, and that's uh, Magnus's website, so you can just scan that on your phone, and you will go wherever, wherever it is on the World Wide Web that he wants to take you. Hugo Hades, 16, lost his family, kicked out of his foster home to fend for himself. He's left to wander the streets and find a way to survive. Hugo meets Timothy, a university student. Well, he's sitting at while. I'm going to correct that. You got a you got a blurb mistake there, Magnus. Oh, I don't like that. While he's sitting at the train station begging for money, who is lost despite the privilege of finishing school and having money to decide what he wants. Timothy finds out a secret about Hugo, about why he was kicked out of his foster parents' house two years ago. What will Timothy do? once he knows the truth so i think you definitely need to look at our blurb seminar all right <laughs> and while you do that i'm going to tell everybody about you uh 20 years old you don't need to tell your age but it's always nice to know when we do have a uh and young a 20 20 years old is young for a writer actually um so that's that's good to know and, and well done congratulations and getting stuck in so early actually part of the lgbtq community canadian and i run an inkit website which i suspect is that very link that you sent us and i'm delighted to tell you we got one of our very finest narrators to read this it's Kay. there's a place for us by magnus k read by k one Hugo. The first snow had just fallen. It was freezing but it was still colder than the average temperatures for this time of year. All the fallen leaves had turned brown or orange and the ones hanging on the trees for dear life were mildly green. It had gone from summer to winter in a matter of five days. I'd slept on a bench in a park last night because I'd gotten to the homeless shelter late and it was full. My joints were sore from the improper bed. I walked around the neighbourhood. Normally, I would stay closer to the downtown area. There were more people, more opportunities to get a little cash. But there were also more patrols and other homeless people around. I got on the train praying the sea train guards wouldn't catch me without a pass. This early in the morning, everyone was in a rush. It was crowded and the windows were fogging up. I took the train up to one of the universities in the area, the University of Maine, one of the only ones accessible by the train. I could only dream of going to this place in my next life. I could barely pay to stay alive, never mind classes to learn anything. I wrapped my coat closer around my thin frame 
an attempt to hide my sign from the people around me. It was embarrassing, but I had to feed myself some way. It was impossible to get a job in this day and age without an email or phone number to receive your schedule or experience. No one wanted me with the way I looked either. I clutched my bag to my chest, pretending to be a college freshman until the train platform cleared. Aside from the people waiting to go on the train to go back towards the city centre, it was sparse. I went inside the train station and sat with my sign. I hoped and prayed that nobody called campus security and got me kicked off the property. As much shelter as the train station gave, it was still cold. I kept my head down trying to keep warm and out of people's way. The first few hours were hell and hundreds of people walked past. They'd glance, stare, read the sign, ignore me. I heard a few coins slip into the cup. I'd mumble thank you quickly, but every time I looked up they'd be gone. Nobody likes being seen with a homeless person. People want to be generous, but when others are watching, it's hard. It's easier to ignore, walk past, go on living your life. Around 12, I moved down to the bottom of the ramp of the train station, mainly because it wasn't as cold with the sun up. I felt people's eyes drag across me as they climbed the stairs to get to the bridge that led to the train platform. I dug my hands deeper into my pockets. I'd made about seven dollars so far. I'd counted before moving. Enough to buy me one meal. I was trying to decide where to go and what I could buy. I could get a small burger from McDonald's and a drink. I was craving candy, but I knew that wouldn't fill or sustain me till tomorrow. I thought about just buying loaves of bread too. Then I could have multiple meals for a while, but they'd be simple. I began thinking about how nice it would have been to go to university or college. Most kids in my position would be lucky to go. I'm not talking about homeless kids. My parents died when I was 10. I'd spent a fair amount of time in the foster care system after that. I was one of the kids who fell through the cracks, disappeared and had nobody looking for them. I sometimes wondered what happened to my social worker and what she was doing. Being a homeless kid in a first world or any world country shouldn't be a thing. Kids are supposed to be learning and growing, not worrying about where their next meal is coming from. Yeah, and you got generally pretty good reaction there. You got a live comment there, Magnus, uh, from Dave on YouTube, um, saying feels real. It does feel real. It does feel real. I, I, Giladriel's got a comment that I think pretty much sums up the Genesis room um, feeling about this. I'm going to read it from the other screen because that's too small. Um, there's a voice here for certain. Yeah, I wonder if, if the writer is writing her experience or has interviewed someone who has been homeless. Some grammar issues, but there's something here that's keeping me interested. Um, me too. What did you think, Neil? Well, I thought the writing was polished, actually, uh, mature, and I felt that there was experience showing through here. Either he's interviewed someone in that position or been in it mm. himself, mm. or he's just got an excellent degree of empathy and imagination which is essential in this game so that was good a uh, couple of phrases phrases a bit strange improper bed i thought was a bit odd it's strange um, yes uh yeah was it canada where's it set maybe that would have been obvious later on is it a railway station or a train station if it's a railway station it's britain train station north america little things like that kind of nagged at me slightly but overall good and i wanted to know what, what happened basically i wanted to find out what was next for this guy well wow, you know it was obviously quite a, tricky position that yeah. he's in 
Um, so I wanted to sort of, yeah, I wanted to carry on with it, basically. I uh, wanted to I find out, yeah. Polished. I yeah. think the writing was strong. Yeah. Okay, so we are conspicuously lacking your vote right now, Neil. I'm trying to get I'm, it to go. Hold on. I'm okay. being a bit... Yes, you've oh, done it! <laughs> you've oh, done yes, it. I have it. Good. You like the title. There's been some comment on the on the title. Let me just ask you about that. Um, I knew that... It, it, it rang a little bell for me. I didn't know what uh, what bell it was. And um, I don't think it was the genius room. It was somebody on YouTube said it's actually West Side Story. And of course it is. And I don't see anything wrong, actually, with, with using something like that. It's got a bit of cultural resonance, hasn't it? Yeah, it's fine. You know, yeah, I think so too. Shakespeare titles all the time in books. It's nice. <laughs> well, if, if it's that old, it's not a rip-off. It's paying homage to. Sorry, I yeah, think. yeah, yeah. yeah. What did you think, Kylie? I was. I, I think we've already kind of picked up on some of the issues within the blurb. I think yeah. a, a bigger comment on the blurb, aside from kind of getting your flow in and just making sure there's no typos and things like that, is the story, where is this heading? And it almost felt like the premise was too small. I couldn't mm. understand where we might go. And it's got to give us some direction, hasn't it? And that's Good what point. I would say is lacking. Yeah. So we need to understand, okay, there's a secret and that's interesting, that's intrigue, but... It, that almost felt like it would be a, kind of a, a micro narrative and a bigger story. So I, I wasn't quite sure where this story is going, and I would like more of that. Yeah. Um, but your writing, I completely agree. Really um, polished. I was, you know, really pleasantly surprised by it, especially for a young writer. And mm. I hope that doesn't sound patronizing, but, you know, it kind of really take my hat off to you. Yeah. Um, very emotive, very real, very genuine, as people have picked up on. And there were some really kind of lovely phrases, like I was craving candy, where we see that kind of almost kind of young naivety of the things that, you you know, you really want in a mm. in, in what can be a, is obviously a very challenging situation. Um, I think towards the end, it, it kind of started to kind of tell us a lot. Whereas yeah. I think we would like to be shown more. So we're yeah. following you on your train journey and then we start going into the history of, you know, yeah. of, of things. So um, really kind of think about story as much of more as much as the emotive kind of side of things and um, don't let the topic kind of take over, if that yeah. makes sense. It does. I think it's great uh, advice, it actually. That, <laughs> yeah, I think that's right. And I think there are lots of tricks of the trade that you can you can pick up quite quickly, Magnus. I mean, there's another one. Another. Small, these are all small things, and they are tricks. They're tricks, actually. And uh, one I'd point out is you start out with the weather, uh, which is a way that, you know, writers very often do start out, and just because they're writing themselves into it, really. Do we care about the weather? No. But actually, if you just reverse those two things, the weather, you know, who cares? about what the weather was like really actually it is relevant if you're homeless so the next paragraph goes on to describing you know the narrator's situation yeah the, at that point the weather does become relevant you could just reverse those two things around but i think i think we're looking good actually let's just look at the overall numbers so far you've got level 60 that's nothing to be ashamed of at all that's a very good start actually magnus in fact even at this early stage let's just look at uh, the scorecard very close isn't it you've magnus you've just pipped caroline just and jeff agrees with kylie needs more to draw me in but writing is good and that's the that's the most important thing writing is good that's very good news i want to ask neil just pick up pick up this conversation that's going on now so things are going really well publishing business money hand over fist a bit of his windfall bit of his not they're doing really well author income is dropping like a stone disconnect there um what can authors do what can authors do well, is self-publishing the answer 
can be. I mean, the author's income dropping, the average is dropping, but the good authors are making more money. So, what so it's polarising. It's polarising. Yeah, exactly. We're seeing a flight to quality in a sense, or certainly brand quality. So the big author brands are doing better than ever. There's less room for the mid-list. And you know, the people at the bottom of the pile are not making any money at all. But that's always been the case. You know, you don't... I mean, you know, novice writers, unless they're bloody good, make nothing, frankly, for quite a while. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but the mid-list has been thinned out. But the people at the top are making more money now than they ever did. But isn't so that very short-term thinking? Don't we actually need those novice writers, as you as you put it, to come in, to well, cut their teeth, to write a few books, and because they yeah. are our new product development area for the future? Well, in a way, but you've only got about three or 400 top writers, so you don't need 15,000 new ones. You only need three oh, or 400 no. good new ones. It's a, it's a brutal kind of mass, but there's only room for a small number of people at the top of the pyramid. But right. those people are making more money now than they were 10 or 20 years ago. But they're getting ago. older and older. They're getting out of touch. They don't, they don't know what, you yeah, know. You say that, but, you know, look at Wilbur Smith. I mean, he's, he must be nudging 90. And he's is he alive? Is he alive still? Uh, yeah. And he's, but he's got co-writers coming in underneath him. So the brand, um. the Wilbur Smith brand will go on. I mean, look at Lee Child, same principle. He's got you know, an so atelier, atelier, yes. Of, of Wilbur, They're not disappointing. The, yeah, yeah. Brings, it's like a studio, as you say. It's like, a, yeah. it's like the studios of the Re Renaissance painters, you know. Yeah. Uh, they can carry on churning out the books. They just write the plot outlines and sit back and someone else does the graph. Yeah. Well, well this is not, not encouraging news for aspiring writers, though, is it? I mean, no, they, they, no, they, well, they've got to break in somehow. It, <laughs> no, but if they get it right, the rewards are bigger. That's the way to look at it. Yeah. Um, but yes, self-publishing yeah. is definitely, you know, on the up, no question. Uh, yeah. I mean, you know, we run a self-publishing awards scheme now, which we I was going to ask about that. 10 years ago. Yeah, yeah. Uh, well, just, know, how big is it relative to the, whatever you want to call it, the traditional side, the legacy side, well, some people call it? Well, the short answer is we can't really tell because Amazon won't release the figures. But <laughs> we can make assumptions that Amazon is getting bigger every year. The numbers yeah. of self-published writers are going up, so they must be making money out of it. Yeah, what do you think, um, Kylie? Because you're, you're, you're a marketing whiz. I mean, what, does this sound like a healthy industry to you or, or what? Uh, I don't... <laughs> I, I'm not sure. I'm really interested in... Does it sound like the strangest business you've ever come across? But yeah, it really does. <laughs> and it, like everything, isn't there? There's, um, there's wealth gaps and issues of the people at the top and the people who are trying to come in. Yeah. Um, I guess it's kind of what's the opportunity for the people who are trying to come in. And actually, one of my questions is self-publishing. I'm really interested in because there must be an influx of everybody's just trying to have a go. And why not? Why wouldn't you if you have a passion mm. and, and you want to kind of give it a go? But mm. uh, what does that do for the... I, this sounds like an awful phrase, but kind of the wheat from the chaff, the good stuff, yeah. or the cream rise to the top. I don't know. I, yeah. Neil. There's a point of view in there. Well, I mean, the publishers are signing self-published writers now in a way that they didn't used to. So you could regard self-publishing as a kind of trial area in which the, it's, the, it's in some respects it's the slush pile come to life, being right. monetized. Right. Um, and from yeah. that slush pile, the publishers are then going in and cherry-picking the one or two good people who they yeah. think have got a commercial brand future. Yeah, yeah. But the That's opposite is true too, isn't it? I mean, you've got you've got your middle-list authors who are sort of scratching their heads and think, why why do I want to sort of scrape along the bottom? Mm. You know, earning what twelve thousand a year now, when yeah. I could be getting you know seventy percent of all my sales if I go direct through Amazon. Uh, absolutely, and you know, and saves a lot of grief as well. But then some people don't like self-publishing; they want to be with a big publisher. Yeah. They don't want That's to worry about selling the books. They're good yeah. at writing their books. They're not necessarily good at selling. It's not the same yeah. discipline or skill. Yeah. Uh, so it doesn't, it doesn't work for everybody, definitely not. 
Yeah, very interesting. Um, let's um, let's look at the next submission, and we will come back and talk about this a little bit more. Submission number three: The Couple Born. What an interesting title! I probably said it all wrong. The Couple Born. It's general fiction. I don't know what that is, really. YA. Okay, I do know what that is. And there's a QR code there, and it's from Olivia. And this is Olivia's blurb. The couple born explores the complex life of faith healer Aidan Gallagher. And as an opposing voice, teenager Maria Walsh. When Maria's sister falls ill from leukemia, and all options for medical intervention run out, the Walsh family turn to Aidan Gallagher for help. Can Aidan give them the miracle they so desperately want. This novel looks at the belief in faith healers and the emotional impact on both the healer and recipient. It touches on the themes of identity, loss, and forgiveness. And I'll tell you about Olivia. I'm an Irish writer uh, based in Belfast. I've self-published, there you go, two novels, Elastic Girls, published in 2017, and won the Indie Reader Discovery Award for fiction, and Black Beach was published in 2020 and was shortlisted for the Mislexia Novel Competition. I've always loved that. Um, Mislexia Novel Competition. I have an MA in creative writing, and I will embark on a PhD this coming autumn. I live in Belfast with my husband and two children. And who better? Well, actually, <laughs> there's something interesting to tell you about the narration on this. But um, who better than... Emily to start us off. The Couple Born by Olivia, read by Emily. Aden, July, nineteen seventy-seven. Every year on Bilbury Sunday, Daddy took the seven of us up Benachlan Mountain. Most of the dark, ripe berries were hidden in amongst prickly hummocks of bright purple bell heather, and we squabbled and cursed as we fought over the little blighters until our fingers bled. When finally we reached the top of the hill, we collapsed onto the grassy mound and devoured handfuls of our find, the bitter yellow insides sharp against our tongues. We were waiting for the speaking horse to arrive. The mound we were sitting on was believed to be home to the fairy king Dunbin, and folklore had it that Dunbin's white horse, the Coppelborn, would appear on the slopes of the mountain on Bilbury Sunday. He would come to give warnings and prophecies to local people. Daddy leant over the old stone pillar that marked the peak. Don't eat them all or you'll have the runs, he said. He pointed at Quilka Mountain, the low slope of Nochninny Hill, and he stared across the glistening flats of Loch Erne in the distance with its myriad of marshy islands. We couldn't see what he could see. Not then. We whined and complained about the damp smell of sphagnum moss, of the pains in our legs and how it was a waste coming up here in the first place. Nobody's ever seen it. Michael said. Master Mulligan says the Coppelborn is a fairy tale. Daddy didn't take his eyes off the fields below, but his jaw tightened. We'll give it an hour. We wrestled, blew trumpets with thick blades of grass and wasted time until Daddy gave up. That's it so, he said. Nothing to tell us this year. He hacked out onto the grass, straightened himself and then set back off down the mountain. Daddy moved easily over the heaving boggy ground, picking a way through a maze of eroded peat hags. He knew Ben Ochlin, the land of his father and his grandfather, like nobody else. But even so, we were on Master Mulligan's side. We were all convinced that the Coppelborn would never appear. But the magic white stallion had been waiting to catch us out. It came, not on Bilbury Sunday, but on the day of my ninth birthday, appearing only to me. 
Maria, 2014 It was a great disappointment to others that we weren't identical. Even though ma'am dressed us in matching clothes, the difference was obvious. Ah, oh, they're not the same, they would say, like night and day. As far as I was concerned, though, Claire and I were one and the same. We only ever played together, disliked the same foods, and shared corners of our blankie, sucking one and each, one end each as we slept. We moved round the house like shadows, always inseparable. But there was no getting away from the science of it. Claire and I were genetically unique, our difference marked from the beginning. We were fraternal twins, each developed from a separate egg, each egg fertilized by its own sperm cell. It was only when Ma'am took us swimming at the Lakeland Forum that I began to notice it. We were only six years old, and while Claire didn't hesitate to jump right in and do a great big belly flop, I curled my toes around the edge of the pool, refusing to leap into the instructor's arms. I threw a tantrum in the changing rooms, refusing to get dressed and pulling away from the shower. All the way home I sat in the back seat of the car, sucking on the blankie, refusing to share it with Claire. She had perfected the breaststroke before I could manage the doggy paddle, and after putting up with my mulish behavior each week, Mam finally gave up. She let me sit poolside instead, where we would watch Claire length after length, steering herself with ease. This was the start of our pulling apart in different directions. I tried to go along with it, picking out my own clothes, playing different music, determined to carve my own place in the world. I told myself that I was happy to be different, but I could never quite find my footing, was less adept at being my own person. In truth, I lacked the ability to live without Claire. Okay, so you may have noticed that uh, uh, Emily's voice changed somewhat <laughs> during that reading. Uh, I have to say, uh, thank you very much, Peggy, actually, because we had a slight pagination issue on that. And it, it seems to work out really well, by complete coincidence, but we did have a, a pagination problem, literally just a few minutes before the show. So uh, it was either a question of not including it at all or getting two readers. And it just worked out. Actually, it was like two voices, I think. So, wow, talk about happenstance. So uh, thank you very much for stepping in, Peggy, the last minute. What did you think, Kaylee? I enjoyed this. I marked it particularly highly for craft. The writing was so beautiful and tight. It was really kind of well edited and really kind of very succinct. I just felt like it really kind of distilled what needed to be said. Um, I preferred the um, kind of, if, if I can call it sections, the first sections mm. more than the second section. I yeah. almost can't explain why it just started to slightly tail off for me in terms of interest. I think because it was telling us a lot, it was telling us a lot about the dynamic between the two sisters. And I understand that's the setup for the story to come, but there was almost a bit too much of that. Whereas the front section was very kind of there was a lot of movement it was quite rich um but overall i like the premise your blurb didn't have me i would say that i could understand the premise and i was interested in it but i wasn't quite sold on how you told the story in your blurb so maybe just uh, go back because your writing actually almost was completely different to that mm. it, it was so strong um 
and I like your title as well. Okay. Yeah, I, I, love, I love that title said. too. Yeah, well, and once again, Kaylee takes the words entirely out of my mouth and find my presence here is completely irrelevant, really, because okay. Kaylee just says it all, doesn't she? Um, let's just see what I think. I think it's, it's a very astute comment about um, people very, very strongly positive about it to begin with, Olivia. Then after that, the voice change, literally a voice change. Um, I think people, be this is a common problem actually, people began to slightly disengage, Vicky for example, uh, and uh, Big Letters losing me. I think that is, it's always a problem that you've got to guard against actually. Strong beginning point, what happens after that? Uh, you've got to kick in booster stage number two, that's what happens, you've got to do that, otherwise you are going to find you've got initial attention, but it, but it, but it starts to wane. What did you think now? Um, yeah, I thought the first bit was very good. I was on the hillside, July 1977. Yeah. You could smell the, you, you know, it was really good actually. Yeah, really yeah. setting. And I, uh, and I thought the second bit part, it wasn't. The first bit was more like a kind of traditional Irishy kind of saga somehow. Mm. The second bit felt more modern, but I, it, like they used the phrase poolside. Who says poolside? You know, it's the kind of yeah. thing that. A thirty-something yeah. California would say, not a, a Belfast child of the nineteen seventies, or indeed yeah. a, a now, I suspect. So the tone for me wasn't quite right in the second bit, uh, to be frank. Um, but the first bit was really good, actually, Ooh. and I like the idea of the horse and the idea that the horse. I love that. It appeared to me when I received a death on my birthday. I want to know more about that. What happened there? Yeah. What did it look like? Know. You know, what were the circumstances? I yeah. really want to know. What? How did she see this horse? Yeah, I know. Also, <laughs> why was the dad obsessed with the fact that a horse would appear? Had he seen it? Yeah, you know? yeah. I mean, that was an interesting idea, wasn't it? Because I yeah. assume it's mythical. I've no evidence for its existence, but maybe it isn't mythical. So maybe oh, there, there's know. something more going on here. I was magical. Really That's in what that magical realism is. You know, you're yeah. not quite, yeah, never yeah, quite yeah. sure. Uh, but the oh. rising over was strong, strong. Right, you know, it, it was nicely broken up. The dialogue was nice. The way it ended on that, and then I saw it on my, you know, the. There was a build-up to a climax in that first bit, which was really good, actually. Yeah. So yeah, well, yeah, that's reflected in your in your numbers, isn't it? You've given a five out of five stars, hundred percent for the yeah. craft. Very, very. Yeah, nice I don't think the craft needs working on that. It's good to me. It, yeah. You know, I think it's talking about the pace, maybe, and the structure is a slightly different area. Yeah. But the actual yeah. writing is good. Well, we've seen. And Ireland's we, great. We you like. can write Irish stuff now. You're laughing. You know, all the publishers are looking at Irish books at the moment. There you go. There you go. Yeah, honestly, from the, you know. Milkman, yeah. Sally Rooney, it's all going on for Irish writers at the moment. Sure is. Yeah, absolutely. Um, that's great. That's that's a heck of a score, actually. Let's just look at, oh yeah, 69. That is seriously way up with uh, with monthly winners, actually. So I wonder what's going to happen in the next two submissions. Before we look at the next two submissions, I want to pick this up again with you, Neil, about the state of state of play right now. Uh, Self-publishing option for some people, very, very hard work. It's a business, basically. You've got to run the business, actually. Um, do publishers still think of Amazon as a threat? No. I mean, I think they, that panic has calmed down, basically. They're more interested now in, in self-publishing as a way to find authors, basically. Uh, I mean, Amazon is a fact of life now. There's nothing to worrying about it. Uh, and arguably, in the pandemic, Amazon saved publishing. You know, they were able to deliver books and, and sustain, you know, that model across a year or 18 months of disruption. So, you know, the demand for reading was satisfied by Amazon. People weren't yeah. going shopping, but they were getting stuff at home delivered. Yeah. Uh, so Amazon is a kind of necessary evil, but they don't, they don't regard it as much to an evil as they used to. Yeah, um, yeah. yeah. And, they and, certainly and the whole they were in might fear. go away soon as well. 
yeah. you know, Amazon might finally have to pay a fair share of tax. There have been changes to the, an agreement in the last week to, to, to have a, a standard level of tax for big multinationals. That's which right. Catch Amazon, basically. Yeah, yeah. How was that going to cascade down to the humble author? Uh, I'm not saying it is necessarily, no. Mm. <laughs> you know, I'd, I wouldn't wait for that to happen. If you're an author, you need to go and write and, 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 and hope the market and sustain your, find an audience to your craft. But I do think that's, that there is a chance for that now in a way that there wasn't because, yeah. you know, the distribution in publishing is much better now. So yeah. books are reaching more niches, I think, than they were 10 or 20 years ago. Elizabeth on YouTube just asked, does it screw up your chances for traditional publishing if you self-publish first? Uh, go with Kindle, let's, let's call self-publishing Kindle because it pretty much is, really. Um, I've just upset, no. upset some people at Barnes & Noble. What do you think? No, definitely not. I, I think the obverse is true. I think being able to successfully self-publish establishes that you've got a market and people pay money for your books. You said successfully. Uh, you said successfully. That's a key word. Yeah, yeah. There's no point in doing this badly. If you're going to do it as a hobby and make no money out of it, then that's fine. But don't expect the publishers to give you a contract if you're not any good. You've got yeah. to be good. It's yeah. as simple as that. It's like being a professional footballer. Just because you can kick a ball around doesn't mean you're any good. <laughs> you know, there's only a few thousand people in Britain making a good living out of writing. You know, you are trying to get into an elite group if you want to make a living out of it. It's as yeah. simple as that. So don't, yeah. if you want to do it as a hobby, fine. But don't think you're going to make any money out of it. Uh, wow. That's telling like it is. Yeah, straight from the horse's mouth there. <laughs> Thank you, Neil. I tell you what, let's look at submission number four, shall we? Then we'll come back and talk a little bit more. This is from Belle. It's called Emma Has a Secret. It's a thriller. This is Belle's blurb. Emma is good at keeping secrets, but her darkest one is in her past, and she's keeping that from everyone, even herself. Carolyn and Emma have never met, but they are linked by the tragedy that all but destroyed both their families when Emma was very small. Carolyn is convinced her brother was unjustly convicted of murder, but as she fights to clear his name, she comes to believe Emma may know the truth. We'll tell you the truth as far as we know it about Olivia. Um, no, sorry, I've already done that. <laughs> the truth about Belle. Uh, one line. Uh, you keep a few secrets, Belle. Belle Baxter is a British pensioner who began her first novel five years ago. You don't have to say you're a pensioner. Makes me think you're marching around in a scarlet coat and sort of three digits to your age. Um, began her first novel five years ago. Fine. All right. Thank you, Belle. Short and sweet. And the reading is going to be very sweet indeed because it's from Barbara. Emma has a secret by Bell Baxter, read by Barbara. Chapter 1. North London Suburbs, 20 years ago. That noise, that awful noise, would it never stop? She put her finger in her ears, but that didn't help. It never did. It was a painful, high-pitched wailing with the penetrating qualities of her fire siren. She asked herself how the others could sleep through it. It pierced through the walls, it soaked through the ceiling, it never seemed to stop. She wanted a drink. That meant the kitchen. As she padded quietly along the corridor, the noise rose to a crescendo as she neared the door of the little bedroom. The door stood ajar. She looked in. The baby had kicked off all his bedclothes, but she knew that wasn't why he was wailing. He wailed because he had colic. The doctor had said... He was three months old, so it would stop soon, he said. But it didn't stop. 
it never stopped. She stood beside the cot, looking down at the unattractive, red-faced, screaming bundle with its tiny clenched fists, then pulled up the bedclothes carefully. That made no difference. The noise, that awful noise! Across the arm of the chair, she saw Paul's new blue jumper, the one he'd been given for his birthday. He must have thrown it down when he picked up the wailing bundle. He was always taking him in his arms, holding his son, rocking him, patting his back. Sometimes it stopped the wails, but never for long. She stroked the jumper's warm fluffiness, then turned as the baby coughed, momentarily poising its wailing. It stopped. A wonderful thing. Silence. She was peering into the cot, marvelling at this new development, when the baby, perhaps sensing her presence, resumed his cries at full volume. She grabbed the sweater, then threw it over the baby's face and held it there. Gradually, the noise stopped. Central London, present day. Caroline Williams, Personal Recollections, second tape. Children can be cruel, very cruel. I remember when I first heard my brother Paul had been killed in prison. It was the class bully, Alex Dawes, who told me. That was the first I'd heard the truth. My mother had told me we hadn't heard from him because he was ill in sick bay with his nerves. I just knew something wasn't right about that as an explanation, but I could see Mum didn't want me to pry. She had enough on her plate, hiking to the hospital twice a day to visit my dad. We'd been told he'd probably only got months left. Alex had been asked some question in geography that he couldn't answer. It was an easy question, something we'd done last week, and the class had sniggered at the startled look on his face. He'd been staring into space. He didn't have the sense to keep quiet, so he took a wild stab and said something stupid. The class roared with laughter. Is he cold up there on planet Alex? Miss Sanderson said, looking straight at him. It was the moment when she turned and asked me as much to say Carolyn will know that really cooked my goose with Alex stores. Because of course I did know, and the teacher knew I'd know, so I couldn't not answer and Alex Dawes blamed me, not the teacher. That started days and weeks of torture for me. Once Alex Dawes saw that going on about Paul's death would make me cry, there was no stopping him. Bullies are like that. That information never lost its power to hurt though the initial shock was blunted through repetition. But no question, that first time when I realised that what Alex was saying was the truth, I could have killed him. Just as he blamed me for making him look stupid, so I blamed him as the messenger telling me Paul was dead. Obviously I couldn't do anything. I was a scrawny little 13-year-old, while he was an ugly, thick-set, almost 15, and I knew better than to try to hit him. But I wanted to. I really did. I wanted to bash him till the blood flowed. I could never imagine myself hurting a baby, though. An innocent little baby. Wow. Tough stuff, tough stuff. Uh, Neil, you've got some big fans in the genius room. I don't know if you've been looking. I don't, you probably haven't. You're too busy because you've got uh, the scoreboard to do as well. But um, Dean Baxter says, I'm loving Neil's honest insights. Um... Uh, Vagabond, no, sorry, Martin says, uh, I think he's being um, a little ironic here. So, Neil's something of a shrinking violet. <laughs> no, he's not, he's not. Um, yeah, very, very much appreciated having you here today, actually, Neil. Uh, we've got a few more questions. Actually, if you and the genius room are on YouTube right now and want more questions, we've still got a few more minutes to, to throw them at Neil and get solid answers. What did you think to that, Neil? Well, 
I was quite shocked actually by that first bit. You know, the mm. crying baby upstairs. You think, oh, you know, this isn't great. You know, obviously it's a noisy baby and everything. And then the next thing you know, the baby's being smothered. I mean, that right. is a really, that's a that was, really hardcore opening. It's you know, shocking, I mean, isn't it? Yeah. Exactly. I was yeah. quite shocked. I was shocked by that. I mean, a child death, even now in literature, yeah. is unusual, it shall is. we say. Yeah. So that was strong. I thought the blurb, I couldn't sort of get my head around the plot. There were too many things going on, but I think that's more me than the blurb. I think the blurb should have been slightly bigger, perhaps, a bit more background. Hmm. I didn't understand how, how the two things interrelated. And then the second bit about the class bully. And right at the end, she says, I couldn't imagine hurting a baby. So is she the mother that then goes on to kill the baby? Or I'm not am I sure. getting that muddled up? I didn't get that. Okay, I so didn't you didn't get that. that. No. Okay, that, no. I, I just needed more, but I was hooked. I mean, that's a real, as I say, you, know, you go into a bookshop, you pick up a book, you read the first, I don't know, 500 words, and you've got a dead baby on your hands, almost literally. That's quite a strong start to a book. Yeah, as Lex says in the genius room, that was well written. Now, pardon me, I need to go drink a liquor store. Yeah, uh, Andy says that was a nice bit of writing. Couldn't quite believe it as speech. RG says too much explanation. I'm switching off. Ooh, switching off, disengaging after that. What did you think, Carly? I I completely agree with Neil. I mean, it was I I actually had that feeling in your heart when something dramatic happens, and you're like, oh. Um, mm. So I mean, you really took the reader from zero to a hundred, um, and there was there were some very clever I felt kind of bits in there where it was kind of picking up the jumper, and it's almost more maternal instinct for the jumper and stroking that than for the baby, and mm. I thought that was very clever. Um, I think the thing with that, of course, is you, you've taken us up here emotionally and then you drop us quite quickly because you go on to the next part of the story. And then you do, you know, I, I thought that line, and of course we've cut it off at a certain point, but I thought that was quite clever. Kind of, of course, I'd never do it to a baby and that it kind of then bring, draws us back in. So yeah. I, it's more of an observation than it is a point. But I think, you, you know, it... it, it you have such kind of a dramatic opening it, it, it can be difficult to sustain so i would just be interested to know how you keep us with you without um i know someone's kind of mentioned there about potentially kind of trailing off slightly but i i was with it i was hooked um i actually really like the title i like a nice one seal title you I know like exactly it. what it is yeah. it's someone called emma and they've got a secret and i, yeah, I quite quite like that. Yeah. <laughs> uh, tells me what it is in a nutshell um so I think for kind of bang and craft, I, I enjoyed it. The story, I think it has story, and that's what is the strength here. Good. Thank you very much. That's great, Carly. Now, I think um, you can see the numbers changing all the time, a little bit up, a little bit down. Why does that happen, you ask me? What's, what's going on behind the scenes? What's going on behind the scenes is actually the genius room. As uh, more and more people vote in the genius room, so it affects the... The average number you see reflected there. Um, for example, at the moment they're saying 58 for the title, 62 for the blurbs, 82 for the craft. They really like your craft, Belle. You haven't wasted the last five years, have you? Uh, bang, which is commercial potential, way up there, 78. I think we need to, as we uh, look at the, pan uh, the last submission of the day, actually, I think we need now to see how the whole scorecard is looking because it's going to be really close. Yeah, so it is close, isn't it? We've got two vying in around 60-ish, 59 and 60. Um, we've got two vying around the 70-68 mark. And at the moment, it looks like Olivia's just going to, to nudge it. Um, but who knows? People are still voting. People are still voting for yours, Bal. And incidentally, in the genius room, 
Barbara, who is our narrator, always like to give uh, um, uh, to feature narrator's comments because they see it in a different way. You know, Barbara says, "I really liked this," so I hope you're happy with that, Belle. Let's just go back to to Neil for perhaps our last um, last chat of the day. I want to ask you, Neil, if what's the straight, what's the biggest mistake you've ever seen a publisher make? Well, there was a famous publisher who spent about a million quid on CD-ROMs. Uh, oh, DK. yes. I know who that is, yes. Uh, and, and, and that was about 20 years ago. Uh, that was Star Wars. Published. Yeah, I mean, that wasn't really fiction. I think, hard to say the biggest mistake. I mean, you know, sometimes you look at a deal and think, why have they done that? They've commissioned themselves yes. to that writer a huge amount of money. Yeah. Uh, it's the classic thing where they see, they jump on a bandwagon, but they're too late, basically. And they spend a lot of money trying to buy a book that apes a successful book. Um, but they're less bad at that now, publishers. I think they've become better at making decisions, as I've observed. Do you think they're more risk-averse than they were? Yeah, I think they are, um, because, they're, as I say, they're using self-publishing and, you know, they're, they're being safer in their signings. If you've got a big YouTube following, you know, they'll, hmm. they'll sign your book because they know that, that that YouTube following will buy the book. Even so if you can't write, even if you can't write, they'll, you can still get a book out there. I'm going to go uh, and shoot myself. In non-fiction, in kind of uh, lifestyle okay. stuff, non-fiction. Yeah, not not in fiction, but in you see a lot yeah. of book deals for books that aren't really books, but they've got a, they've got a big mm. audience existing that will buy the book. And yeah. The publisher thinks, well, if I just put their name and face on the cover and their yeah. thoughts inside, it's a deal. Yeah. yeah. Is, uh, it, is, is do those things always work? No, they don't mm. always work. But but enough of them work for the publishers to think that they might work. So <laughs> what I mean. Yeah, I uh, do. Yeah. Do you see any? Do you see any new Sorry. genres emerging over the past? Well, over the past two years, really, since this whole COVID thing. I mean, obviously, the dystopia. I mean, I don't, I don't know what our relationship yeah. is with the dystopia. Do you see any new genres coming on, or conversely, older genres seeming to taper away? Well, one genre that's collapsed in the period that I've been coming like is the western genre. The westerns just don't work as well oh, yeah. anymore. It was a big yeah. market for westerns a long time yeah. ago. So, yeah. in terms of genres, not so much, but. There definitely is a push for more racial diversity amongst writers by the yep. publishing industry. Yep. They are aware that they've got a problem there, that they're too white uh, and they're too male historically. And that's certainly making a real push to find new types of books from new types of authors. Yeah. Um, yeah. And that's, a, yeah. you know, they're really outreaching to communities that they would have ignored. And also yeah. white working class, you know, the, you know, bits of the country that they just kind of forgot about, they're yeah. now realizing they need to talk to and wow. find writers and <laughs> you mean working, pl working class but... people can read i never knew that well, told, yeah. why didn't someone tell me that? what about smaller no, they, presses are smaller presses flourishing equally as as the big ones are uh it's harder to be sure about that but they certainly aren't going bust i mean when was the last time you had a publisher go bust i mean they just don't go bust i mean they you know they're pretty solid commercially even yeah. the small ones are doing okay yeah. Um, yeah. But the big ones are the ones that have the big brand authors, and they leveraging those big brand authors much better than they were 10 or 20 years ago. They've just mm. got more sophisticated. They've got better data. They mm. can see who's buying the books. They've mm. got better foreign rights operations going on. They're doing world rights much more now. They're yeah, they selling are. books to English-speaking audiences yeah. all over the world. You know, yeah. The biggest well, audio books. No one ever talks about, I must just get this point in, Peter, Go on. is the academic publishing. Oh so my God. OUP turns over 600 million quid a year 
So they are bigger than Penguin, and no, yeah. everyone just forgets that. So that's yeah. where the real money yeah. is in British publishing. It's yeah. in academic publishing. Well, Robert Maxwell didn't forget that, did he? No, it's been it's he's been a money mint for a long time. Um, audiobooks for a long time, audiobooks were kind of Cinderella. Everyone's saying yeah. audiobooks are going to happen. They didn't happen. Yeah. And uh, what's the state of play yeah, they there? They didn't now? work. We we I remember vividly. We ran a conference in about two thousand and five at the Book Center. We calculated we made more profit from that conference about audio. So we were kind of ahead of the curve on that. But but the short answer is yes, audio is working now. Various reasons. People can listen in cars, they yeah. can use to do that on their phones, on trains. So the opportunity to listen, jogging, in the shower, mm. you know, the weight the amount of minutes a day you can consume a book has gone up yeah. massively because of technologies enabled that. A and B the app, you know, the, the way to find out audiobooks you want has become, you know, the kind of sampling side mm. has become much mm. more sophisticated. So mm. it's, you, they're getting better at getting the product in front of the ears of the re- of the lead reader slash listener. Yeah, and the reading has got the quality of production has got better. And you've got proper actors reading now yeah. and getting yeah. decent money for it. So you're on yeah. a virtuous circle where they're making yeah. more money, they're investing in the product and the technology, and people are getting used to it. Uh, and it's lost its and yeah they're making serious it's now maybe 10 percent ish of the business mm. that's definitely not the case yeah, yeah. and just you know, just uh, just say um there's this thing uh, if you're self-published and d- committed to going that route there's this thing called amazon creative exchange that's quite interesting and it, it will you know uh, pay you up with 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 vocal talent so don't think it's just the big publishers who can get all the talent um one more submission guys it's getting quite tense isn't it this is submission number five. Long is the way and hard. Now that's a title for you. Long is the way and hard. It's a crime thriller. It's from Mike Moroni, and this is Mike's blurb. After witnessing a murder, Joe ended up on the run with Casey, a young woman. At first, they thought some rich psychopath was hunting clever girls. But as they uncovered further linked killings, a more sinister agenda emerged. The dead women and Casey shared one trait. They were all geniuses. A rare breed, not interested in wealth or fame, but who had the desire to change the world. Women like that were a danger to the status quo. Dark forces waited to eliminate the threat because they feared nothing was more powerful than an idea whose time had come. I do like your title, Mike. It feels quite Cormac McCarthy to me. Um, let me tell everybody about you. A graduate of the New Writing South novel writing course. I have self-published a children's book, Mishka. I produced and directed two low-budget low films and a documentary, A Stiff Upper Lip. Jeeves. Uh, the documentary was shown at various film festivals and was selected as one of the best of the fest at the San Francisco Doc Fest. And you've got some awards. I won't read all of them because you've got a lot. I will just mention, though, currently a semi finalist in the Kindle Book Review Awards 2021. How relevant to what we were just saying. Currently a quarter finalist in the Book Life Award 2021. And you want, clearly, you need and deserve and will get an award winning reading from Robert. Long is the Way and Hard by Mike, read by Robert. Chapter 1 The Girl by the Fountain. It starts, like most things, with a dead body. Ghosts sent me out, into the bright cold city, trying to outpace memory, 
but the sharp, shrill accusation stayed with me. Early morning has become later afternoon, when I raise my eyes from the pavement and find myself in front of the park on hope and sunset. My hunger must have directed me to the burrito truck that's always parked to the side of the main entrance. Yesterday, a few hours of washing dishes had put some notes into my empty pockets, and I buy one of the fiery chicken Diablo wraps and take it to the park. The smell gets me to drooling like some Pavlovan dog. That pepper heat is what you need when the icy winter wind makes you pull your thick coat tight. I'm about to take the first bite when a blonde woman comes into the park and I clock she's not kosher. She radiates confident energy, even if she has thrown over a shroud to smother it. Apart from the blonde, another out-of-place person catches my attention. Coming across the lawn, a lithe man in a black tracksuit also scans the park, only pure screams 147 undercover. Fucking idiot. No one jogs in this park. Less than half a block away is the outdoor stadium. Here, all you've got is wet grass and weaving concrete paths. The woman passes the black tracksuit and don't register him. Not even the subconscious ticks when you're trying to avoid showing you know someone. A second check of the blonde and I see I'm right. Her clothes, her boots, her hair, everything about her is too glossy for this canvas. She reaches the point where the four paths meet and scans the park, clearly looking for someone. Her gaze passes over me and black tracksuit and lingers on a f the few women around. So, she's waiting for a woman who doesn't know them by sight. Could be a blind date a and a suspicious partner, what with a shadow trailing her. Not my business. She's not a cop anyway. A girl, in red converse, black jeans and hoodie, sits on a bench near the small fountain of a faux Greek goddess, pouring water out of her urn. She sees the woman and stands up. Then the afternoon spins out of control. Triple K comes from the shadows, and he is bad news. Bootsy christened him Triple K because he's whiter than the clan and is violent. No one knows what colour drained from him. Sometimes you think Nigerian, then pure Polish. Ursula says this lack of identity is the cause of his conflict. Everyone else is him down as a pure psychotic off his face most of the time, who likes mayhem. Triple K is aimed at the woman, and closes in with an intensity that holds a world of trouble for her. From his jerky movements, he's tweaking out of his brain. Panther fast, he closes the late last distance in a blur, grabs the blonde woman's expensive brown leather bag strap, and uses it to jerk her backwards, and all around all exposed for the attack. I don't see the blade, but the whole pantomime tells me Triple K shanked her, the hand thrust, the shock in the blonde woman's face, the girl springing back in horror. I'm trying to move forward, but the shock has me standing in treacle. A black form blurs in my left vision. The undercover cop has flipped his badge out, silver flashing on the chain around his neck. Triple K runs, he is fast, and the shadows deep. Hitting anything with a pistol at more than few feet is hard, more so a target that weaves in the gathering dark. In a few steps, he'll be away. With one last warning, the cop drops into a shooting stance, and the pistol cracks. Triple K staggers, then slowly crumples to the ground. The cop reaches trickle, Triple K and frisks him. He's in a bad way, but still, the cop slaps on the cuffs. I can't say as I blame him. Let's see what the genie eye. Oh, thinking about that. Dean says, uh, nice prize. Uh, Johnny's got two comments. He says, slightly Chandlerish, Chandlerish. Um, and then a little bit, a little bit after that, he says, eh, it's lost it a bit for me now. Johnny says, nice reading, Robert. I'd love to know what Robert thought of that because we always want to know what underwriters think. What did you think, Daniel? 
yeah, I mean, yeah, it's crime. You know, it's great. It's like violence <laughs> in the park. You know, I mean, it's what you want, isn't it? What a crime! Crime. Uh, no, I liked it, and I like the opening line. It starts with you know, like most things do, with a dead body. That, co- I, that the opening line is really important in a book. I always think. Yeah. It, you know, yeah. it really requires thought, and it was good. Um, yeah. I mean, the the bit with the pistol and the, it's hard to shoot. To shoot someone running away from you and hit them first time, difficult to do, I would have thought. Maybe, you know, the guy would have got away in reality, I don't know. But I want to know more about what's going on. It's like a crime scene from various different angles. I need yeah. to know what the background is. You know, who's the person watching all this? How can they tell so much about people just from what they're wearing or, you know... The, you know, all, I don't know, I was intrigued by the setup. It was a good setup. There was a lot of stuff going on quickly, you know, and the writing was, there was one little mistake with the don't, doesn't, apart from that, good writing. Yeah. Uh, overall, I'm pretty positive about this, actually. Yeah. I think yeah it's pretty so good. Lex has just picked you up on that. Crime, it's crime, it's great, isn't it? Yeah. So, so that's, that's a classic quote from this show. That's what people, well, people won't remember your, your amazing wisdom about the publishing business. That's all they're going to remember. But that's life, isn't it, really? Be your epitaph. Yeah, um, so, uh, Andy, there's some great wordplay here, but I'd be careful. Too much makes it difficult to keep up with what's going on. And Gladwin says, writing's a bit clotted. And Vagabond says, what Andy said. What do you think, Kayleigh? I, well, crime is great. And I like crime. I like crime thriller. <laughs> so, and it's, it's been, a, you know, a really strong kind of lineup today. And, and mm. I, I felt, I wrote down great first line as well. I thought that was a brilliant opener. Um, and I wrote down that the colour in the writing, it was very rich. I felt like this, again, was very tight, tightly written. Um, the, it's funny because the whole bit of the kind of as it got towards the end, I didn't really know what was happening. Yeah. It, it all moved so quickly. I thought it was, it was just so me because I'm a bit stupid. But obviously, it was, well, yeah, you're far more intelligent than me. And even you kind of lost <laughs> the plot a little bit. Yeah. So, yeah. I, yeah, me too. I, I, yeah, I, literally, I lost the plot. So, yeah, okay. I think there's you know great to have energy in your writing and in your prose but just we're not with you we haven't been thinking about this of course for as long as you have so we're trying to kind of keep up with the story um and and i struggled a little bit but that's to be honest you know if that's your problem then it's a good problem to have isn't it because you can quite easily kind of smooth and stretch out a little bit but overall i thought it was really strong good story good writing fantastic fantastic good excellent thank you very much um yeah so look i just it's been a great show today everybody i would love to keep on talking to neil but it's unfair really because it's it's a sunday he's allowed one day off a week actually are you working today actually neil because you've got a, a no, bulletin to put yeah. out tomorrow you are yeah yeah yeah, yeah, yeah. i am i've got stories to do tonight frankfurt yeah. book fair opening tomorrow yes uh, of course conference. yeah are we expecting starts. anything great from that uh, not the academic conference, no. No, 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 <laughs> no. Oh, but the Pharaoh I'm in Hall, Frankfurt, yeah. Uh, not really, no, because virtually no key people are going. There's a few people going, but most people aren't going this year. The key yeah. thing is they're doing it. So the German yeah. money government put money in to keep it going. So hopefully next year it'll be back to normal in a vertical. Do you think, do publishers and agents really in this day and age need to physically see each other face to face? Ultimately, they do, yeah, in the long run. They've got to do it somewhere. Uh, they might as well do it at Frankfurt or London. But, in the end, that's business. You need to meet the people you're working with. You, you mm. can do it online for a year, two years, but you can't do it online for five or ten years. There mm. comes a point where you need to meet, definitely, yeah. Mm. Do, you, uh, do you find that too, Kenny? Yes, for so long. I Well, I'm not... I think I've got a bit 
fed up of Zooms uh, and I've just started oh. me kind of going back out and having in the room meetings and yeah. it, it's a, you forget you forget how much you can read people you can pick up on kind of really small reactions and, and see you know the cogs turning inside someone's mind and it's, yeah. it's so important um, yeah. so I'm, I'm quite a big advocate of yeah. getting back out there and yeah. Well, hopefully we'll all be able to do that soon. Of course, the most important thing that Neil didn't kindly mention, but obviously we're really publishing it all about, is actually getting together and having a drink. Uh, let's yeah. see what the final scoreboard looks like in this show of shows. Wow. It's tight. It's close. But I have to say, it looks like Olivia. Yes, Olivia, the couple born... Two readers, Olivia. Uh, you didn't intend it. It's our accident, but it does mean... Congratulations. Well done, Olivia. Very good show. Great guests. Fabulous to have Kaylee on. Fabulous to have Neil on. Uh, everyone behind the scenes has contributed so much to today's show. Being, of course, Kate and Rachel and Emily and all our fabulous narrators, but most importantly of all, of course, the people who actually do the writing. And that's you. Thanks very much, everyone. See you same time next Sunday. Take care. Oh, the world's a stage. Welcome to the show. I